death. Some people believe it's the end of existence, and others believe it's just the next step. It's one of the things you can control and can't control at the same time. But regardless of any of that, everyone has their moment. And it's not always fair. The healthy will die young, and the unhealthy will die old. And while many people out there are relatively afraid of death, it does have a bit of a morbid sense of humor. We are taught that revenge is not susceptible to death. In our first case, how the mighty have fallen. Vikings have a powerful reputation as fierce warriors through tales of mighty battles and conquests. Sigurd the Mighty was no exception to this reputation. He was referred to as the Mighty due to his exploits in conquering the north of Scotland. Sigurd the Mighty had a lot of self-confidence, and rightfully so. He eventually came up with the idea to challenge a native leader to a 40-man-aside battle. His opponent, named Male the Bucktoothed for his incredibly large buck teeth, showed up with his 40 men, and Sigurd decided to show up with 80, breaking the rules and slaughtering them all. Sigurd confronted the defeated male and mercilessly decapitated him. Male the Bucktooth was dead, and Sigurd had proven himself superior. Or had he? Sigurd, in a state of overwhelming confidence, strapped Male's head to the saddle of his horse as a trophy. As he rode away, Male's head whipped and swayed about, which caused his oversized buck teeth to strike Sigurd's leg cutting it open. The small wound quickly began to fester and became infected, and soon thereafter, Sigurd the Mighty was dead. It had seemed that Male the Bucktooth had gotten his revenge for Sigurd's treachery, even in death. Living dangerously is never a good idea. It can have some expected consequences, but sometimes the consequences aren't always as expected as they might seem, such as in our next case, Watch Your Step. Bobby Leach was a stuntman at heart. He was always seeking the next thrill, even into his later years. He had even worked for Barnum & Bailey Circus, performing a number of feats. His biggest claim to fame, however, was that he was the second person ever to ride over Niagara Falls. In 1911, he stepped into his large metal barrel and plummeted down into the rocks below, breaking his jaw and both of his kneecaps. Bobby Leach had become something of a legend. He received quite a bit of recognition for his stunt, he was not satisfied by that, however. Bobby Leach returned to Niagara Falls to operate a pool hall in 1920, and even into his 60s was still performing. He attempted several times to swim the dangerous Niagara Whirlpool Rapids, but unfortunately failed each time. Bobby's life didn't end in the Niagara waters as one might have expected. It seems that death has a bit of a better sense of humor about things. Bobby Leach, while on a publicity tour in New Zealand, slipped on an orange peel and injured his leg. The leg became infected and eventually led to his death. You'd think that stuntmen are just asking for an early grave, but asking for it takes on a whole new meaning in our next case. Party of Two dinner for one. He was commonly referred to as the Master Butcher, and knowing that, you might think he's especially good at handling meats, and uh, truth be told, he kind of was, but this is not a butcher you would want to buy any meat from. 
Armin Mives was the one known as the master butcher, but he wasn't a butcher at all, not in the traditional sense. He was a computer repair technician with an odd craving, a craving for human flesh. Armin's desires eventually peaked and he logged into a cannibalistic website and posted an ad. He wrote that he was looking for a well-built 18 to 30 year old to be slaughtered and then consumed. And Bernd Brandis, an engineer from Berlin, answered the call. The two met and enjoyed a fine meal together, Bernd's genitals. Armin complained of it being too chewy and instead cut it up and generously fed it to his dog. Armin filmed the encounter over the span of a few hours where Bird can be seen laying down, just speaking nonchalantly as he's cut apart. Armin eventually killed Bernd and butchered his body, hiding away his meat in a freezer mixed in with other more typical foods. He continued to eat Bernd over the course of 10 months before his capture. Propositioning someone to kill and eventually eat them takes a lot of guts, and perhaps the same can be said for our next case. A bet on your life. It was a lucky day for Sergei Tuganov, a Russian mechanic. He was approached by two women who, for an unknown reason, made an unusual bet. They bet him a few thousand dollars that he couldn't satisfy them for 12 hours straight. Surprisingly, he accepted the bet. Sergei wasn't a fool though, he knew there was no way he could last 12 hours straight, so he went out and purchased himself a secret weapon, a bottle of Viagra. Viagra's potential negative side effects are well known, such as chest pain, shortness of breath, sudden vision loss, and many more. That's from one pill. Sergei felt it fitting to take an entire bottle. Sergei ventured forth to complete his task, surely wishing that he could be anywhere else in the world other than with these two women in a bed for 12 hours. But money was on the line, and 12 hours later, Sergei had won his bet. Shortly after his victory, Sergei suffered a fatal heart attack and collapsed dead. The women, frightened, called for an ambulance, but it was already too late. A sticky situation, to be sure, but perhaps not as sticky as our next case. The Molasses Disaster. It was the winter of 1919 in the north end of Boston and it was an unusually warm day, which while being pleasant to most, was chaos for others. Among many other uses, molasses was the standard sweetener used in the United States at the time. The Purity Distilling Company manufactured massive tanks full of molasses, and on that warm day, inconsistent with the frigid temperatures of the days before it, a tank holding 2.3 million gallons of molasses exploded. Witnesses stated that when the tank exploded, there was a loud rumble and the entire ground shook. The rivets sounded like machine gun fire as they shot free from the tank. For a moment, one might have thought that they were under attack, but the truth was much stranger than that. Before they knew it, a 25-foot wall of molasses raced through Boston's north end at 35 miles per hour, devouring people and horses who desperately tried to get away. Buildings were wiped out entirely in its wake. The molasses was quick to fill every single crack and crevice it could. It would rush into people's mouths and clog up their throats so they couldn't breathe. By the time the wave had settled, those who remained were searching for survivors in the bubbling, churning mess. It was soon discovered that 21 people died in the disaster. It's even said that on hot summer days in the North End, you can still smell molasses. The poet Horace once said, Pale death beats equally 
at the poor man's gate and the palaces of kings. It proves a powerful point that no matter who you may be or how you may live your life, how often you might tempt death or not tempt death, you will die one way or another, sometimes the way you imagined it, and sometimes in a way you could have never imagined it. Death, it can come at any time to anyone. Perhaps a car accident or a fall down the stairs. Oh, but don't worry, it can get much scarier than that. Jonathan Luna, an assistant attorney from Baltimore, seemed to have his life in order. He was doing pretty well for a 38-year-old man who had grown up in the projects of the South Bronx. At the age of 28, he was already working for a prominent law firm. Those accomplishments aside, it had seemed that Jonathan had his vices as well, some of which were catching up with him. Money had suspiciously gone missing from a case he was working on. He was around $25,000 in credit card debt, and he had an active profile on a dating website, despite being married. But it was a cold day in December of 2003 when those issues would become the least of Jonathan's concerns. A string of creepy events took place upon Jonathan leaving work the evening of December 3rd. For reasons remaining unknown to this day, Jonathan didn't head home. He headed out of Maryland and for Delaware. He told no one. He made no contact. He simply up and left. Jonathan wouldn't be alive to return to work the following day. Jonathan's sudden departure was perplexing, but the events that took place on the road were all that much eerier. Less than an hour after he left his work, $200 was withdrawn from Jonathan's bank account. He used his Easy Pass to get through tolls, which is something used often by frequent travelers to expedite the toll process. It made sense for him to utilize it. However, what was strange was that Jonathan's vehicle didn't utilize the Easy Pass lanes for the entire trip. Part of the way through, he began buying toll tickets, though he wouldn't have needed to. His car stopped for gas, and about an hour and a half later, at 5.30 a.m., his car was discovered near a company parking lot, its front end in a creek with all of its lights off. Upon investigation, company employees stumbled upon a gruesome discovery. Jonathan Luna, covered in blood, lied face down in the water, his head near the front end of his vehicle. The driver's side door had blood smeared on it, and when investigators arrived to examine the body, it was discovered that Jonathan had suffered 36 stab wounds to the chest and neck from a small knife. The weapon was Jonathan's own pocket knife. However, even with the wounds, it was determined that Jonathan didn't die from being stabbed, but from drowning. So it was clear that Jonathan was alive when he reached the company parking lot. The case was ruled a suicide by federal authorities, but local authorities in two successive corners believed it was homicide. Peculiar bits of evidence changed some people's minds. Most of the blood was found in the rear seats of the car, signifying that Jonathan may have been a passenger in the car when he was attacked. One of the toll tickets even had a drop of blood on it, leading to the idea that Jonathan was injured even a ways before reaching the parking lot. One thing was for certain. When Jonathan left work, he left a couple of important items on his desk. His cell phone and his glasses. He required his eyeglasses to drive. Without them, he wouldn't have been able to. The investigation of Jonathan Luna's death is still ongoing and it hasn't yet been determined 
whether he was actually driving his vehicle at all. There is a $100,000 reward for any information leading to a conviction. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. It's well known that some journalists take a tremendous risk on the things they choose to report on. Danny Casolaro would meet a brutal death on his path to bring light to darkness. Danny was a freelance writer who was working on a story that, if released, could have changed the entire world as we know it. He was on the trail of a story other journalists had worked on in parts as well. He referred to it as The Octopus. The Octopus was believed by Danny to be an international underground political faction responsible for a number of major worldwide scandals. The group had the power to put whoever they saw fit into political office and was even said to be involved in Ronald Reagan's placement into the presidency. The group has multiple arms that reach into numerous facets of the everyday lives of citizens from a number of countries around the world. Danny was fearless, he worked hard to expose this international cabal, and he paid the ultimate price for it. Danny told his family that he'd often received phone calls late at night threatening and harassing him, attempting to scare him into submission to drop his pursuit of the truth. He often told his brother, as he came closer and closer to the truth, that if he were to die in any accident, not to believe that it was an accident at all. Danny spoke in a way that made others believe that he was sure that he would meet death for the knowledge he had obtained. And it would seem that he was right. In August of 1991, Danny packed his things with the help of his longtime housekeeper. She recalled him placing a thick group of papers into a black briefcase. He told her that he was going to be meeting with a source that could provide a critical puzzle piece to his story, and perhaps provide him with what was needed to uncover the octopus once and for all. Once he was gone, she reported that she answered a number of disturbing phone calls to his home that night. One voice told her that he would cut Danny's body and throw it to the sharks. That was only one of several. Danny checked into a hotel and he was soon spotted at a cocktail lounge within the hotel. He spoke with a man that just so happened to be renting the room beside his. Danny excused himself to make a phone call and when he returned, he claimed that his source had probably blown him off. The next morning, housekeeping entered Danny's room and discovered a horrifying scene. Danny was naked, dead in the bathtub with numerous cuts to his wrists. Blood was covering the bathroom floor and walls. The sight was so gruesome that one of the housekeepers fainted upon seeing it. Investigators found an empty beer can beneath Danny's body along with two white plastic trash bags. A half-empty bottle of wine rested nearby. Aside from the mess in the bathroom, the room was quite clean. On the desk sat a note that read, To those who I love the most, please forgive me for the worst possible thing I could have done. Most of all, I'm sorry to my son. 
I know deep down inside that God will let me in. Due to the body's condition and no evidence of a struggle, it was determined that Danny had committed suicide. However, one odd detail was offered by his family. Danny was squeamish and hated the sight of his own blood. So if Danny were to commit suicide, it more than likely wouldn't have occurred in such a way. It was reported that during Danny's funeral, a limousine arrived. A highly decorated military official stepped out, walked to the casket, placed a medal upon it, and saluted before leaving. The man has never been identified. Some deaths occur without rhyme or reason, and the evidence left behind will haunt us forever. Elisa Lam was a 21-year-old student from Canada visiting Los Angeles, California in early 2013. Unfortunately, the hotel Elisa chose to stay at, the Hotel Cecil, was a place notorious for sinister happenings. A number of terrible things have occurred within its walls, from thefts to suicides to murders. The Hotel Cecil was perhaps best known for being the residence of two prolific serial killers, Jack Unterweger and Richard Ramirez, the infamous Night Stalker, who were responsible for striking immeasurable amounts of fear in their own respective ways through their brutal, merciless murders. One of the most haunting details of Elisa's final moments involved an elevator and were caught on security footage. Elisa can be seen stepping onto the elevator and pressing all of the buttons for an unknown reason. The elevator doors, however, refuse to close. Elisa cautiously steps to the elevator doors and darts her head out as if she were expecting someone to be out there, possibly even looking for her. Her movements are quick, like she doesn't wish to be caught. She ends up pressing herself into the corner of the elevator in what looks like an attempt to hide from an unseen presence. The elevator doors still malfunctioned and refused to close, so she stepped out from the elevator in a series of odd movements. Some time passes and she steps back into the elevator, appearing distressed, only to try again pressing all of the buttons. What happens next is most chilling, as the doors yet again refuse to close, and Elisa emerges into the hallway and begins moving in a disturbing manner. She moves out of the camera's view and doesn't return. 30 seconds later, the elevator doors finally close and it moves freely from floor to floor. Disturbing, yes, but it's not over yet. Two weeks later, residents of the Hotel Cecil complained to management that the water was discolored and that it smelled and tasted funny. When the water tanks on the roof were inspected to discover the cause, Elisa Lamb's body was found dead and bloated inside. It was determined that she had ended up inside the tank only moments after she stepped out of the elevator. The problem was that the roof was nearly impossible to access as it was blocked behind two locked, alarmed doors that Elisa somehow passed through undetected. Even if she had done it herself, Climbing the water tanks, opening one, and then closing it behind her would have been even more difficult. Despite this, investigators ruled her death accidental. Chilling, disturbing, and still not over yet. A movie named Dark Water depicts a mother and daughter who move into a slummy apartment where the water begins to run black. 
The daughter's name is Cecilia, close to Hotel Cecil, and the water's dark color is the result of a dead body up in the roof's water tank. At the end of the movie, the elevator even malfunctions. The movie was released eight years before Elisa Lamb's death. An eerie parallel indeed, however, still not over. An outbreak of tuberculosis erupted in the same location as where Elisa's body was found within the same time frame. The testing kit used for tuberculosis is known as the Lamb Elisa test. Elisa's first and last name switched, spelled exactly the same. Elisa's autopsy revealed that drugs played no role in her death, and though she did have bipolar disorder, her strange behavior and the details surrounding her death have yet to be explained. You see, death itself is nothing to be afraid of, but the manner in which death occurs, well, that's a different story altogether. How someone will die is fairly uncertain, but that doesn't mean we can't make a pretty good guess every now and again. Sometimes we need to question how much we should read into our dreams. Mikey Welsh was an artist that was best known as the bassist for American rock band Weezer. Many ups and downs in his personal life had caused the bassist to take a leave of absence in 2001 after suffering a tough mental breakdown. Mikey had suffered from a lifelong struggle with drug addiction and believed that focusing on art would help channel his emotions and mental troubles. Despite his hardships, Mikey would occasionally take time to play with his former band in 2010 and 2011. On September 26, 2011, Mikey took to Twitter after experiencing an unusual, realistic, and frightening dream. His tweet stated, Dreamt I died in Chicago next weekend. Heart attack in my sleep. Need to write my will today. He then went on to correct his prediction to the week after next. On October 8, 2011, Weezer took to social media to sadly announce that the former bassist and artist had passed away. It had later been announced that Mikey was found dead in his Chicago hotel bathroom at approximately 11 p.m. from a suspected drug overdose, leading to a fatal heart attack while he was passed out. Mikey was 40 years old and left behind a wife and two children. Oftentimes when we think of terrible accidents, we hope and believe that it could never happen to us. Frank Pastore was a former American Major League Baseball pitcher from Alhambra, California. During his years pitching in the Major League, Frank went on to play for the Cincinnati Reds, the Minnesota Twins, and the Texas Rangers from 1979 until 1987. Known and well-respected, Frank expanded his horizons and went back to school, majoring in philosophy of religion and ethics in 1994. In 2004, Frank landed a job as a Christian talk show radio host in Los Angeles. As a born-again Christian, Frank often spoke about his faith and even published a book. Frank went on to successfully host the radio station for eight years until tragedy struck his life on November 19, 2012. Just three hours prior, Frank was discussing the possibility of life after death using himself as prime example of what real-life tragedies could occur to him. The following recording was taken just before Frank was involved in a devastating motor vehicle accident. I mean, look, you guys know I ride a motorcycle, right? So at any moment, uh, especially with the idiot people who cross the diamond lane into my lane, all right, without any blinkers, not that I'm angry about it, but 
uh, at any minute, I could be spread all over the 210. That same afternoon, Frank inexplicably collided with a Hyundai Sonata while cruising on his Honda motorcycle on the Foothill Freeway in Duarte, California. The accident left Frank in a coma with severe head injuries. On December 17th, while in the hospital, Frank died at the age of 55 from pneumonia and complications resulting from the accident, leaving behind a wife, two children, and a grandchild. His death came as a shock to many. Frequent talk show listeners believe that Frank's final discussion was an eerie prediction to his final moments. Dream interpretation has been given a lot of weight and a lot of skepticism. Sugar Ray Robinson was an American professional boxer who carried the legacy of being one of the greatest boxers of all time. During his career, Sugar Ray became known as the first boxer in history to win a divisional world championship five times. Winning hundreds of matches, Sugar Ray was challenged to fight 22-year-old Jimmy Doyle in Cleveland, Ohio on June 25, 1947. Sugar Ray prepared and heavily anticipated their match, but all of that came to an end one night. Just the night prior to the match, Sugar Ray fell asleep at a friend's house when he experienced a vivid dream depicting the two fighting each other in the ring. Defending his title, Sugar Ray envisioned himself flooring his opponent and resulting in Jimmy's death. Sugar Ray reported that his dream felt incredibly real and because of this he refused to get into the ring. With the support of a priest, Sugar Ray was reassured that his dream was simply a dream that could do no harm. Convinced, Sugar Ray went on to fight Jimmy. After an intense eight round match, Sugar Ray dropped Jimmy with a strong left hook punch. Jimmy fell to the ground and never gained consciousness. He was immediately taken to St. Vincent's Charity Hospital, where he died of a cerebral hemorrhage 17 hours after his final knockout, just as Sugar Ray's dream had warned him. Multiple criminal charges were threatened against Sugar Ray, but none were ever processed. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.